My guest today is Kai San, and this is the very first episode I ever recorded. He's a friend of mine and was over at my house in January, helping me set up my audio equipment for this podcast. And we started a pseudo test episode that turned into a really interesting conversation. We went deep into the realms of psychology, mythology, astrology, and archetype, discussing those subconscious things that drive us and how the experience of our inner world percolates out into some of the stories, myths, legends, and symbols that we are familiar with. He also shared extensively about his experiences with ayahuasca and shared about some of the deeper aspects of that medicine that we haven't heard about on the podcast yet, such as plant diets and the real experience of diving deep into the underworld over a period of time. So put your thinking caps on for this one and get ready for a deep dive. Here is Kaisan. building an oracle i mean that's what that's what i've been working on mm -hmm. the the goal of what an oracle does you know providing uh like accurate relevant guidance at a deep level specific yeah to that person mm -hmm. that's kind of impossible to do you know but that's the level of you know prediction is it's it's an impossible task Mm -hmm. So there's an inevitable level of failure there, but. Well, you know, ac according to something I read once upon a time, um, uh, big data analytics have been able to predict the future to a degree. At least I think the future of social movements, you know, they mm -hmm. can, they, they've been able to identify certain patterns and trends of how people think and how society moves and um, they can predict to certain degrees of confidence what's going to happen based on based on their heuristics of past knowledge and current trends yeah it's so nuts yeah it's scary nuts it's like they've got their finger on the pulse of the hive mind and the hive mind knows what's going on, <laughs> even if the individual bees don't. I'm sure you've seen those studies. Uh, it, this is kind of more on the psi paranormal psychology level, like with the 9/11 attacks. Mm -hmm. There was there was a precognitive spike about an hour before hmm. of the use of of something highly correlated, like terrorist or something like. 
an hour before things happened, like around the world, there was this subconscious. Like search terms, like in search engines. Yeah, oh. but before that, so and yeah. and what the study showed is that there's a there's a sort of like subconscious precognitive ability that we all have at the level of the hive mind, mm-hmm. and so things like sentiment analysis, which is studying how people feel by what they post, you know, at a large scale. So like when you absorb everyone's status updates and the words that they use how they're how charged emotionally charged they are Mm -hmm. i'm feeling sad today you know like that gets read as like they can extract out sad and so the words you use are correlated with how you feel and so you you just absorb huge amounts of this and you can you can project trends and things like that Mm -hmm. have you there's some experiments that show precognition on the individual level as well they did this, there was this experiment where they sat people down in front of a screen and um, there, there was a series of images. Some of them were designed to invoke an emotional response and some of them were just innocuous like, um, you know, flowers and trees and whatever, you know, snails. But then the emotionally stimulating ones were like, uh, a snake about to strike or like a snarling wolf or like pornography even right yeah um and so they had these people hooked up to all these uh physiological monitors and like reading skin sensitivity yeah skin galvanic skin response and um eeg and all all these kind of uh monitors right physiological monitors so yeah they just they had these people hooked up to all these wires and just sit in front of the screen and then reading what their body signs were as the computer randomly decided which image it was going to show them, right? Uh, And so they noticed this. They didn't expect to see this, but they noticed that before the images with an emotional response, people had like a precognitive physiological activity, there was like a spike in activity before they saw the image, right before. Like, yeah. I want to say 200 milliseconds, which is a fifth of a second, which is, you know, not that long, but kind of kind of long. It's like they felt that coming. And they, they the participants themselves were not aware of any kind of precognition, but on a bi- biological level, physiological level, they were having that response. Right now, the other interesting thing is, so nobody knew what image was going to come. The participant didn't know, the facilitator no didn't know, the computer itself didn't even know, because every trial, uh, the computer decided which image to show randomly at the moment that it showed it. So there wasn't a set order to the images. So the person had, and you know, they only had a response to the, uh, emotionally evocative images, not the innocuous ones. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Like they somehow, and there's no explanation for that effect, but the effect is there reliably and consistently. Any, any speculation 
on sure any any intuitions on how that works time and space are not as they appear <laughs> <laughs> and we have some ability to pierce the veil of time and space there's some some part of us a deep part of us that and you know yeah that can sound kind of like woo woo but on an evolutionary in an, you know that that could be evolutionarily advantageous precognition oh know? yeah definitely those uh those mammals demonstrating precognition would have a higher chance of survival if you got a funny feeling you know if the hairs in the back of your neck stood up and uh you know you went on alert even though you didn't know why uh whatever mechanism is delivering that is advantageous now yeah, especially when it's life and death with predators. And yeah. Now, we don't necessarily know what that mechanism is. I certainly don't. Maybe somebody out there is trying to figure out exactly what's happening there. But I think you have to look. My thought is you'd have to look beyond the biological systems in the way that we currently view them. Like, And, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of mysteries to how the body works, according to Western medicine, at least. You know, we don't really, we don't really understand how our bodies work, but we know that they work. You yeah. Know? Um, like they, you know, they haven't even found where the mind is. They thought the mind was in the brain for a long time, and um, but you know, they, they, we haven't found where is the consciousness happening. Yeah, and you won't be able to. Right. Have you have you read any or uh, heard Irvin Laszlo? No. He's got this. He's a systems theorist, and uh, he's got a couple books. He's been focusing on the Akashic field, mm -hmm. so he's been he's been sort of synthesizing a lot of new paradigm science. So like a like the edge of cosmology and biology and physics and all these hard sciences, mm -hmm. and figuring out like kind of like tracking the edges as a systems theorist, kind of like trying to f come up with the theory of everything sort mm -hmm. of thing. And, um, so his work builds, or it's related to uh, like Sheldrake's work with the morphogenetic fields. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, this sense of these fields that or field phenomenon hold, uh, like they have memory and that's how like evolution interacts with these fields. Like there's, there's some relationship with how information gets transferred, you know, in and out between these field effects. And, and the Akashic field is sort of like very similar to the ancient Vedic Akashic records. It's like the field of everything, but it's this sense of, it's the, it's almost like the informational dimension to space time. Hmm. And so in, in one of these recent books of his, he, he sort of splits not splits, but relates that there's the material world made of matter, and then there's the mind, which is the sort of like pre-manifest substrate. It's not a substrate. It's it's like it's the ground, like the like when the Buddhists talk about emptiness or the ground of being. It's a very there's, it's a spiritual concept of this sort of absolute consciousness that's immaterial. Mm -hmm. And there's this sort of relationship between this immaterial potential 
which is we like we all it's at the core of all of us but you can't measure it mm-hmm. it's like it's like pure awareness and it interacts with matter but it's so there's some really interesting theories around the brain being a receiver and like a transceiver like the the mind isn't located in the skull it's it's like it's a part of space time mm-hmm. you know like it's in the fabric and we our brains are like tv sets um or we're like projectors and like you know the 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 image that's projected like the head or the brain or the you know the biological mechanics is the machinery like the projector is and the, and but you never see the projector you only see the image yeah you know that that's that's the mind and they're looking at the image on the wall and they're like scraping the wall and trying to study like oh we're but they're missing I don't know. The source. Yeah. Of I mean, the image. Or, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I said that right, but... Yeah, I follow you. I mean, there's this sense of holography. Uh-huh. Like, uh, the... It's the science of sort of how information is spread out. It's almost like non-local information processing. A hologram, it, it sort of, it like, in every part is the whole... Right. So you can cut out a piece and you have the hole in it. So there's this sense of you like... You can like cut away half of the hologram and you'll still have the hole. It's degraded, right? No, it's it's intact. So it's like... Oh, yeah? It has to do with fractal fractaling. Like f- fractal self-similarity is very similar to holographic. So what a fractal is, is it's self-similar. Like you can scale down and you'll see the same patterns recur. And then you scale down and the same pattern will occur when you scale down. Right. Holography or holographic, what that means is that the whole is within the part. So like all pieces, all parts Mm -hmm. contain the whole. And for me, there's this intuition around like the wave particle, quantum physics, like where it's like if you look at something, it, it, it collapses into a particle. If you don't look at it, it's it 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 operates like a wave. Right. It's like these two different phase states depending upon observation. Like it's like the func- part of the function of what we do in the world is we collapse this hologram which is in a wave state, kind of non-local wave state. Like when we look at something we collapse it down into matter into like particles and it's really fascinating to kind of <laughs> contemplate, you know. But to, uh-huh. to go back to what you're saying around matter and the mind you know, mind is this immaterial thing. Right. And there's only one. There's only one mind. Like like the one the one cosmic mind? Is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that we all partake in. Okay, I see. So like we are all we are all part of the greater hologram. Like our individual mind is a representation of the cosmic mind and vice versa. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the deepest spiritual wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, like the um, the divine spark within each of us. Mm-hmm. It's like a little piece of God. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that phrase, you know, the hippie phrase, we're all one. Mm-hmm. That's a very simplified version of it. Sure. It's like at the core, there's this, it's like the same substrate. Right. People, yeah, I, I remember people saying that all the time, and I'm like, I don't know if people know 
what they mean by that. I certainly don't. Like, I get it, kind of, you know, like, okay, yeah. But what does that really mean? You know, do I really understand that on a deeper level? Oh, we're all one. I don't think I do. (laughs) Maybe one day. I've had glimpses, you know, but. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like a realization that kind of deepens. Right. You know, there's certain types of knowledge that you, you sort of like realize it at a certain level of depth and then. And then you can only just realize it at deeper levels. It's it's different. So like the what I've gathered around the difference between knowledge and wisdom, like knowledge advances, you know, it can build upon itself. And it has this sense that there's like progression and movement and you can become more advanced in something. Or, but wisdom, it almost seems like it's outside of time and space. It's this sort of like it applies. and Like you're tapping into something that exists. Like you're you're lucky enough to catch a glimpse of it, yeah. rather than like you made it up. Yeah, like w- wisdom doesn't advance; mm-hmm. it remains relevant in the sense that it's timeless, so that it's always relevant in any point in time. But you can only deepen your awareness into it. Mm-hmm. That's what I've gathered around it. So this sense of like we're all one, like you can understand it in the head, and you can understand it in the heart and you can understand in the body and mm-hmm. you can have mystical experiences where there's like a dissolving of boundaries and you can kind of, you know, see it in your mind's eye. And It's, it's interesting how there's these different levels of spiritual ideas, you know, and the most superficial layer is just this kind of like gross cliche, you know, vacuous representation of the deeper wisdom, right? It's not untrue, you know, like somebody could just be like, oh, we're all one, right? (laughs) And maybe they have no idea what they're talking about. It's not untrue still, but yeah. It's like a truth that's only at a certain level of depth. Yeah, right. It's true, but it's not deep. Right. And it doesn't, doesn't ring like the you know the pure bell of truth when you hear something that's like deep wisdom that somebody says and it just it vibrates so clear that it vibrates you and you're like oh yeah (laughs) compared to like we are all one and you're just like be quiet yeah there's that sense of gravity Mm -hmm. the the difference between the superficial layer you know, versus the the layers of depth, like the in the tone of voice. You know, like the the elder who speaks it has a gravity there, mm. that's, a presence. Yeah, yeah, that's all Saturn. That's the the weighty, serious gravity. I'm a big fan of Saturn. Totally, yeah. He's not real popular with most people, but yeah, totally it's misunderstood. A great, teacher, great, the sage. Yeah, I mean, Saturn is the pathway to mastery. Mm-hmm. It's a taskmaster. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, I mean, it's got old world correlations with Satan. You know, like it was one of the demonized forces. So Saturn, Satan, they're very morphologically similar mm-hmm. or phonetically. And Santa. <laughs> Santa. <laughs> Santa. Santa's actually Jupiterian. Yeah. So he's he's the classic Jupiter. The giver. Well, he's so Jupiter is large, large S, 
mm-hmm. it's generosity, it's magnanimous, mm-hmm. magnanimity, something like that. Magnanimous, sure. But it's the sense like he's this very large man that flies around just delivering presents to people. That's classic Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Whereas where Saturn, we were talking earlier, is, is the miser. You know, so like the the polarity between Jupiter and Saturn is you've got generosity and abundance and giving versus conservatism and counting your pennies and mm-hmm. and really it's the it's this uh, consciousness that attends to the details of things mm-hmm. so it's like focused on the details and it zooms in so it's really good for like accounting and and these you know these minute tasks that need everything structure needs, everything needs to be in order yeah totally planning mm-hmm strategy yeah saturn relates to structure it relates to time it relates to gravity it relates to discipline so it's like it's the it's the bones in the body Mm -hmm. so it's the calcium it's the structural element in the body right like without saturn we would just be a pile of goop Mm -hmm. right like it so it's what gets us to stand up Mm -hmm. and there's this sense that there's the physical sense of the skeleton, right? Like, but then there's the, there's like the metaphorical sense of backbone. So like people in their youth don't have, or, you know, people that are sheltered don't have backbone. Like it's only until you encounter struggle or oppression, these oppressive forces coming at you that you learn to develop the backbone, the spine to push back on it. So there's that relationship there, the structural elements, and, and it relates to the skin in the sense that it's the boundary of our body. So, you know, it's it's boundaries. It's the ability to say no. Mm-hmm. So whereas like Jupiter would be, it's all yes. Venus is yes. Mars would be no. Mars and Saturn are both the no. Mm-hmm. They, you know, Saturn is... A lot of people don't like no, but no is pretty important. It's half the equation. Yeah, just as important as yes. Yeah. And people don't like suffering either. That's probably why Saturn gets a bad name. You know, people don't like that. Well, it's like if you go to the gym and you're not lifting enough to challenge your muscles, you're never going to grow. Yeah. You're you're putting in time and effort, but, you know, you got to actually, you got to actually strain, you know, you got to have that resistance I suppose that makes mm. you stronger. Totally. Yeah. I've been gaining more of an appreciation of the value. Like, you know, I don't know, like most people, I don't want to suffer. And uh, I was trying to figure out, like, I don't want to learn through suffering. Like, me, like, how can I learn through more gracious methods? How can I, you know, how can I eliminate suffering from my life? And, um, I mean, the Buddhists say the first noble truth is life is suffering, more, yeah. more or less. And then the remainder of the truths are how to deal with yeah. it. <laughs> but it's just like, hey, it's just the way it is. Life is suffering. doesn't matter who you are. Uh, or it's more like life involves suffering um, than life is suffering. But it's a tremendous teacher if you just except, okay, that's the starting point. No matter what I do, my life is going to involve suffering. 
uh, you know, how can I maximize my, how can I maximize my life while embracing the reality? I'm still figuring out the answer to that, but. Yeah, from studying some of this, the mysteries of Saturn, it's like, so part of the context of the, the, the modern situation is that suffering is, is meaningless. Like there, there's a level of chaos in the world and that um, the paradigm that we're in is like, you know, it's dead matter and things happen and there's no rhyme or reason. You know, like we're just in a, in a, in a world of chaos and at a really deep level that sort of helps to configure a sense of meaninglessness, right? But when you interact with suffering or the, the experience of suffering in this sense of that there is a teacher there, that suffering is a teacher that helps to recontextualize the experience of suffering within a meaningful transformative potential mm -hmm. you know like suffering can transform into compassion in a certain way mm -hmm. it can grief can deepen your experience in in ways um i mean i've seen the arc from suffering to compassion personally mm -hmm. you know by by being a like by suffering in certain ways i've been able to develop empathy and see through others eyes and that has created a sense of compassion that has been able to sort of like melt schisms before or cultural boundaries, cultural divides, things like that. Helping you understand that person or other help, others. Yeah. Yeah. Helping you relate to the great experience. Mm -hmm. But it's been useful to, to relate to suffering in that way. I mean, this is just a, a part of a larger philosophy of relating to everything as intelligent and living. You know, every experience is a teacher. Mm -hmm. There's an intelligence there. And it's a guidance system. Yeah. Helping you to perhaps hone in on the things that... I think it's natural to want to not... To, to want to suffer less. But I think in order to suffer less, you have to learn the lesson of the suffering that exists rather than running from it. Yeah. You know, if you just run from your own suffering and try and cover it up with pleasure or indulgence or whatever, avoidance, then you're probably going to keep suffering in that same way because you are still repeating the patterns and behaviors that brought you there in the first place. Yeah, this seems to be... I've witnessed this approach in the wisdom traditions. You know, you mentioned it in, in the Buddhist tradition. I've also seen this in the sort of initiatic, esoteric approaches too, where the sense that like we are a soul incarnating here on a mission with a purpose. And so like we engage with our experience in a very meaningful, purposeful way and that everything like we are tasked with encountering this. So it's like approaching suffering with that mindset that it's a lesson, you know, and we have a choice, you know, there's this element of free will, like we can choose to just go distract, but it's a waste of the spiritual mission, you know, or a, a waste of your part of the reason why we're here to grow and move past it and understand and integrate. 
integrate it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about plant medicine traditions. Sure. Um, That's an initiatic path. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think at least with the ayahuasca tradition or um, the practice of drinking ayahuasca and having the experience of it, um, my experience and my um, observation is kind of a rough initiatic tradition. And I think that uh, we as Western people or as Americans, we don't really... We don't really understand. This is my. This is just my thought. We don't really understand like the depth of that culture, um, <clears throat> and a lot of people, like some people, will go down to the Amazon and and they'll study for whatever a year or something like that, and then come back to the United States and start serving ayahuasca to people. And you know, just it's not like I know the depth of the Amazonian tradition to say that we're missing something, but my experience in the, in the ayahuasca experience in ceremonies connected to the energy of that medicine and that plant, it, do, it does feel like we're just barely skimming the surface. In most, most of the ceremonies I've been in, like, or I, would, I should say with most of the facilitators. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's many different tribes that practice it, and they all have their different traditions, wildly divergent from each other in some cases. But there's some universals between them, and, um, you know, one of those things is that it's it's not a path that people enter on lightly, <laughs> and that the process of initiation is... Uh, in a way, it's a lifelong initiation, but certainly the apprenticeship period is very lengthy. Um, one group is like seven years of full-time study, like you're living in the jungle with the shaman, learning plants, drinking medicine uh, for seven years. Getting broken down and rebuilt. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that that's what it takes to be able to facilitate um, a healing experience for another person. You have to, you know, like you said. um, It's like the 10,000 hours metaphor, and you can only reach mastery at that level and, you know, time and effort. Mm -hmm. But like earlier you were saying, you were able to generate compassion for others by experiencing your own suffering and then and then you can see it in others and you can empathize with it well i think as a healer i mean how do you know how to heal somebody else unless you've healed yourself or at least you know yeah that's gone, the sense gone of down the shaman's crisis mm-hmm. it's like the way i've heard it the story told is there's usually some sort of uh illness that you get struck down with and that is the beginning of the shaman's crisis. And it's only when you mm, go down into the underworld, you know, and, and approach your sickness, your illness, and then learn to transform it into medicine 
that is your initiation. So it's almost like, you know, true shamans, they don't just self-select. They're chosen, mm-hmm. you know, by whatever mysterious forces, you know, but there's this sense of like what you were saying, in order for you to have mastery in terms of healing others, you have had to go through your own healing process. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some illness and sickness that you've had to have firsthand experience with in order for you to really get that transformational pattern down so that you can bring others through it, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Uh, Are you willing to share some about your personal experience with that? Like your personal healing journey and, uh, or whatever you want to share really like your, your, Actually, I'd like to know um, what was your initiation process into ayahuasca? Like, how did you first hear about it? I mean, maybe we should tell people what ayahuasca is. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'll do another episode. We've kind of just jumped into this episode. But maybe I'll do another one where I really explain what plant medicine is and all of that. So we could just keep going. I'll assume people know. Yeah. We were touching on this in a previous conversation. I think for you, this is around the rite of passage with Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was in, uh, I had just graduated. I was working downtown. Graduated at, college? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe two years out of college, maybe 26. Uh, wearing button-up shirts and working at a big, large medical institution and feeling empty inside Mm. and then realized I had saved up a bunch of money. I think it was like eight grand. It wasn't wasn't a whole bunch, (laughs) but it was was enough. When you're 26, that's a lot. Saving 10% all through high school. Yeah, it added up. And so there was this sort of sense of like, geez, I really don't know what I want to do with my life. And this is a serious enough, um, I'm, I'm lost enough to the point that I'm going to stop the entire program, cultural program of working where I was working. And I'm just going to start living on savings and I'm just going to go freak out for a while and, and go discover and go on a walkabout and kind of find who I am mm-hmm. at a deeper level. And that's when I came into a uh, Burning Man tribe uh, back in Chicago, and that's when I also met my medicine tribe. And I had a friend who was pouring, and you know he was uh, maybe a couple of years older than me. And it was a modern, hybrid, contemporary. We would sit around. He would play an iPod. We would drink the medicine. Um, it was sacred to a certain degree. Like, you know, it was, you know, we would call space and invoke sacred space. And then we would work, drink this medicine and we would kind of sit around and listen to music and puke and stuff like that. (laughs) All the good stuff. Yeah. And have our experiences. And I went through that for a couple of years. Like that was a great, you know, first, um, first taste. How many ceremonies would you say you did in those first couple of years like how often were you doing a ceremony maybe 10, 10 or 11 per year or no no, no, no over no. several years over the yeah maybe once a year twice a year. I, yeah something like that but i learned 
in a, a, in a after a few years into it, the same lesson that you were talking about with the skill level of the practitioner. Mm. So I had come to learn, like I was, I don't know if I was drinking heavily or if like I would just start spinning out at a certain point. I would just have this like go into this, these, these sort of like suffering spirals, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought this was normal. Uh, and, you know, uh, my friend was very hands off, was, you know, kind of like let the medicine do its thing. And, and it wasn't until I met a Chinese medicine a Chinese medical doctor who was also working with the medicine. He was like bridging Chinese medicine with Amazonian medicine. Specifically ayahuasca or yeah. several Amazonian medicines? Just ayahuasca. Okay. And, you know, I sat with him once and then I started to go into this spiraling suffering mode and he had the skill and the awareness to witness what I was doing and came over and I laid down a little bit and he just manipulated my neck in the slightest way. Like he just kind of pulled on my neck a little bit and just did a little bit of body work. And I felt this energy. It was like, it was kinked up at the base of my neck and it just shot right out my crown. And there was this instant relief Hmm. followed by this realization of, Oh my God, you mean I've been needlessly suffering for years because I had been taking this medicine in the, in the hands of people who weren't, that didn't have the skill level to really manage that level of healing. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of my big, so I had to learn the hard way. Before you came into contact with a more experienced healer, did you have the sense that you were getting a lot out of your ceremonies or that you oh, were? Yeah. Yeah, Did yeah. you, oh, you didn't know what you were missing. You felt like, oh yeah, I'm getting the full experience. I had great experiences, Yeah, you know, but then there was also an incredible level of suffering. Sure. You know, there, the epiphany was around that there was needless suffering, Yeah, you know, like in the hands of more skilled practitioners. But yeah, I mean, I had experiences out in the forest where, you know, yeah, went through, like I did some really deep ancestral healing where I went up my bloodline, up through my ancestral bloodline and was able to, it's like there, there was this insight of incarnating into my particular bloodline with the mission of healing it. This like, is by yourself? No, this is, this is a group in a forest. Oh, okay. A group in a forest. Early on. Okay. Early on. But part of the, it was like the the beginning of the journey started in this place of like this self-loathing, self-hatred kind of belief that emerged. And then I identified it as not mine, but as passed down through my ancestral lineage. And so there was almost like this cascading unlocking hmm. of this trauma, this sort of self-hate trauma mm-hmm. that... I was able to transform into like medicine and awareness and in the process of doing that, traveling back up my bloodline to where these originally were sourced and, and sort of neutralizing it there. And so there was this multidimensional sense of being able to go back through the time matrix and the evolutionary matrix. And how far back did it go? Could you say a few generations? Mm Mm-hmm. Hundred years, 
200 years, something like that. Not too far. Yeah. yeah. And then there was also this sort of de- death and rebirth experience around emerging as I think the phrasing at, at the time was spirit warrior. Mm. I remember taking this poop out in the forest and being <laughs> like, I'm pooping out my parents. It was the weirdest thing. Like it was almost like I had digested. I was, I was transforming. This is around graduating college. And it was a sense of like having to recalibrate my relationship with my family as one of being the son and the student and moving out into the world and establishing my own foundation. And so having to recalibrate my relationship with my parents as one more of like a peer as opposed to like a dependent. Mm-hmm. And there was a sense of having to digest all of that energy and then pooping out like the first 20 years of, of like the persona, you know how we were talking about how people project mm-hmm. who they think we are. Mm-hmm. So there was, yeah, it was probably the weirdest poop I've ever had. <laughs> I've had some interesting purge experiences too. of just feeling like I, I, as I'm, releasing either puking or pooping i can i have a sense of what i'm actually releasing you know yeah yeah it comes streaming by and burps sometimes you know just like oh that, some most of the time i have no idea but i'm just like oh that was something you can feel the the lightness that follows or you know the release of the weight it's yeah the art of the purge it's the weirdest thing it's like it's both like it it sucks. Did you have a resistance to that initially that you had to purging? overcome purging, puking in particular? I mean, the good thing that I learned from my friend who introduced me to it was kind of like, there's like a tacit cultural transmission around like, this is what we're doing. Like we're, he almost taught me how to purge, you know, and like communicated like, yeah, this is a good thing. Like, yeah, like right. we want to do this. Yeah. I think that is important. Were you convinced? Yeah. I mean, you know, that I think that's the art. One of the skills is being able to like, you know, cause it's such a, it's, it's generally a shameful act. It's something you do when something's wrong with you and you do it in private in the bathroom and you hide it from others. Or even pooping, even though everyone poops, it's kind of a shameful act. Yeah. You like culturally, I don't know for a lot of people. Yeah, this this medicine work is the only time I've seen that it's a shared space where there's that level of vulnerability and almost like communal support for each one of us to to pop, you know, and yeah, and blow our lid and and that that's actually supported and that's part of part of it and and there's a lot mixed up in it like purging is kind of ecstatic for me. Like it's 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 like multidimensional in the sense that I'm able to access my body and my lineage in this deeper way. Like, mm-hmm. like when I'm purging and there's like a flood of images and memories and experiences and reasons and like all it comes flooding by all at once, you know, and then, and then it's, it's done and there's relief. But like that level of information flowing through my experience it's at a level of intensity that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, unrivaled really. And it's um yeah, it's well well above that of normal life, normal daily life certainly. Yeah. 
but even just normal physical body human life i mean i don't know unless you do super intense shit like i don't know like extreme sports insane stuff but i've jumped out i've jumped out of a plane before me too twice doesn't compare to ayahuasca yeah, there was there was a rush there. There's a rush, but there's not a multi-dimensional hookup. <laughs> you know, there's there's like a special level of access to in, in some multi-dimensional way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I've heard this described as the medicine is really the diagnostic tool. You know, like in the deeper layers of the work, you know, the the, the practitioner is the one who's manipulating the energy. You know the medicine's doing its work, but that's what the songs. The songs are like an it, it's a it's a it's an interaction. Like the, you know, like where our Western doctors use scalpels mm-hmm. to go in and manipulate in surgery. It's the use of different vocal tonations and rhythms, and and it's singing to the medicine, which is hearing it, and it's kind of it's an interaction. It's responsive to the guidance. Of the, the songs that Icaros. Yeah. And there's different, different Icaros for different purposes, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, um, like protection Icaros. There's, purification Icaros, and um, a shaman who has, uh, you know, uh, I guess like a, a large toolbox of songs for particular moments. And also has a um, good sense of internal guidance about which one to use, can apply those with expertise to move the energy in a certain way that is most beneficial. And I've experienced that multiple times where there's just times during the ceremony where like a heaviness sets into the room. It's like there's just a dark cloud that comes in and... So I've actually palpably felt heavy energy. It's like molasses. It's like I'm trying to swim and breathe within molasses, and it's like suffocating, right? Mm. Um, now, <laughs> that experience was actually with an unaware facilitator because it took a while for that much heaviness to set in. He wasn't aware of it, and he didn't clear it. But other ceremonies with aware facilitators... Um, I feel that heaviness starts to come come in, and he'll respond to it, and sing a song um, that clears clears energy out. Just sort of as like, just feels kind of like a wind that just, I don't know, it just clears it away. Yeah, and it's it's an amazing feeling too. It's not just like, I mean, I feel it in my body as well as I can feel it in the psychic space. I can feel the sense of relief and, and not just me too, but everyone else in the room. I don't know. I'm sure some of them are aware, but some of them, some people go into like a deep space where they're not even really conscious. They're in more of a kind of a response, like emotionally responsive or reactive space. But, you know, he's singing the song and clearing this heaviness from the room and everyone in the room is just going like, Ah, just these like sighs of relief as like this heaviness is being lifted. Yeah. You know, just all doing it together. We're all kind of like feeling what's actually happening in the room. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, 
that's a skill that belongs to you know high level of magician magicianry like that's in the sense that you're using sound and the word and it's creative divine form right like in the biblical sense that like at the beginning was the word you know yeah. like it had like you you're tapping into that level of power in in terms of the creative force right you know using the songs in that way to manipulate the energy around you like that that is the essence of magic and conjuring you sure. know that's where we get spelling from mm. casting a spell like using like spelling out words mm -hmm. you know like but when you when you when you cast words with that level of intention or you sing songs with that level of intention like that that's where the magician comes in you mm -hmm. know like the active palpable intent meets skill projection you yeah. know that you can manipulate a room like that right yeah that's um the person i was speaking about is a friend of mine who's been on the ayahuasca path for 21 years and he's the most most well-studied person that i know that i've ever been in ceremony with and he Sometimes he talks about, like, I've been in a ceremony with him before where he sang this amazing song. Like, I've never heard him sing it before. And and um, after the ceremony, I was like, man, what was that that song you sang and described it? Or I, like, sung a little bit back to him. And he's like, yeah, sometimes I sing that song. I never learned it, though. I'm like, what do you mean? Because he studied with a master teacher, several master teachers from different tribes, and he learned their medicine songs. Um, and he said, yeah, nobody ever taught me that song. It just comes through sometimes. And, and, um, and he said, uh, I just lost my train of thought. He said, um, after he sings it, he can't even remember what it is. He's like, if I had to sing that to you, right, I can't even sing that right now. It only, it, there's a moment that it comes through and it almost sings through him. And then as soon as it's gone, it's gone. Like he is almost like getting out of the way to facilitate that yeah. song. He's and, really the channel. Yeah, yeah. And he said that that's, those kind of songs are, um, that's the language of the plants or that is the, that's the medicine of the spirits of the plants singing through him. He's allowing them to basically, you know, he's acquiescing or consenting to being a co-creator of that in the physical space. Yeah. And as the story goes or the legend goes, that's how all the Icaros came to be as they were taught to people by the actual plant spirits themselves they came through in that fashion nobody no human created them per se like oh, i'm gonna make a song they just kind of come through full and complete in that moment of inspiration yeah it seems to be part of the job description it's fundamentally developing relationships with the spirits of plants and just spirits in general yeah you know it's a pretty rare skill to have that level of sensitivity. And and I think that's what's missing in most of... Because, you know, he actually did the full work. He did the full apprenticeship. He went to the Amazon and he lived with his teachers and he studied, you know, for long periods of time 
dieting plants. I think yeah, he died. You got to spend time with these plants to learn them. And yeah. They got to get to you. You have to cultivate a relationship with them. And I mean, the difference between somebody like that and somebody who downloads Icaros and they learn the words and then they sing them in ceremony. It's not that there's not power to those songs, but the difference is night and day. It's really like the amount of power that an experienced practitioner has, the amount of sensitivity and knowledge and wisdom of how to apply those tools expertly. Uh, can't even compare to somebody who just fathoms himself a shamanic practitioner because they know some medicine songs that, yeah. that they learned from, you know, their friend or from offline or something like that. And I've heard that called the Madidi. What's that? The sacred mucus. <laughs> oh, sure. It's like the transmission of. That's the, the the power that you're talking about. Like if you know from the difference between just hearing it, downloading it, and repeating it, versus mm -hmm. being initiated into it and being a carrier of that power. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. I think that's specifically the Shipibo tradition, the Madidi. Yeah. That they. Um, I mean, there's a lot to know about the ayahuasca tradition. I don't, I don't, can't say that I really know a lot, um, but in, in terms of what the tribes are. But know. yeah, yeah, it's a the Madidi is a transmission of knowledge from the the you know experienced shaman to the apprentice or to the. It's also healing, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it involves uh, the experienced person like drawing up the phlegm from their body and then like the other person consumes it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of energetic transmission in these spaces anyways, mm -hmm. you know, through mm -hmm. the, I mean, through the use of sound and blowing smoke and like literally, uh, like blowing your breath on a person's crown on their hands, mm -hmm. you know, like in, uh, uh, the teacher that I've been working with, it's been in the vegetalismo tradition, and that's mm -hmm. a lot of one-on-one -on -one doctoring. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it's part singing to the room for the first half, and then it's usually like, we'll go up and there'll be like one-on-one -on -one doctoring. And at the end of it, you know, he, he'll, he'll sing songs to us one-on-one, -on -one, but then he will uh, blow on our crown at the end, and then we'll sort of do like a mudra, like a prayer mudra, and he'll blow on our hands. Mm -hmm. And there's that, just breath or smoke? Just the pure breath. breath. Uh -huh. I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell if it's like, if it's inhaling or exhaling, but it's definitely blowing out. But it sounds like it's at the same time. So, right. There's, but there's the transmission of breath in that way. And, and it's, and it's just kind of moving energy off the body. It, it's kind of on the level of chi, like with the Chinese system, like you can, you can just like harvest chi uh, you can move chi just by like fanning above the skin mm -hmm. in a very similar way. So it's kind of like there's that level of, you know, it's like you're moving chi off the crown or you're, you're injecting something through your breath down into the crown mm -hmm. that seals. There's like a ceiling that's happening or a clearing and a ceiling at the same time. So vegetalismo's work with plants right like 
as opposed to spiritualismos who work with spirits as the as the primary kind of like um, m- mode of healing, like spiritualistas call in spirits and veg- vegetalismos, as far as I've heard or understand, they have a wide knowledge of plants and you know they understand oh, uh, Chitixanango does this, uh, Chuchuwasi does this. And they can look at you or and read you and understand what it is that you need, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And they have such a wide plant knowledge that they can like prescribe the medicine of a particular plant. Oh, the medicine of this plant, that would be really good for you. Is that similar to what you've been experiencing? Yeah, I mean, vegetalismo is the, it's kind of like the widespread use of working with plant medicine in a doctoring context, specifically in South America. So like the Shipibo tribe, the um, Mestizo, which is the mix. So it's kind of like, it's it's a wide range of it, but it's specifically around the doctoring work. What do you, what do you mean by doctoring? Uh, like, one, one-on-one singing songs. Mm-hmm. To someone, so you you're doing an ayahuasca ceremony with um, a shamanic practitioner, just one on one, and they're like, well, it's in a group. Oh, okay, but they'll they'll come over and do one on one work with you. With yeah, the group. we'll we'll come up to we'll come up to them, but it's it's also implies this sense of doctor, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of how we've been delineating the difference between Western kid who dabbles in someone who's formally initiated and trained and mm-hmm. but it's also i mean it's working with the plants but it's working with the spirits of the plants so it's kind of like i'm not really familiar with spiritualismo spirit spiritual yeah spiritualismo but it's similar in the sense that you're working with the spirits of the plants primarily mm-hmm. you know and mm. then and plant medicine. And, and so it's this, you know, the, the deeper end of it is that, you know, ayahuasca is sort of like the diagnostic queen of the forest that, you know, um, ingested, it opens up access to, you know, multidimensional access to information. And so like a lot of this grid work that we see in the mantas and in the, in the Shipibo art. Mantas? It, mantas. Okay. Mantas. That that's like the you got them all around here. Oh, I see. That that the Shipibo the, the, the Shipibo pattern that people yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that symbolizes a grid work. You know, it's like this energetic grid and you know, being able to see that and uh it's it's like you know, like when the medicine opens up access to this energetic realm and then you see this sort of like grid mm-hmm. or you sometimes you can mm-hmm. and it's a sense of being able to like energies flowing freely but then maybe there's like a stuck part right here mm-hmm. you know and so like you kind of see the connections around it and so you sing into this area and it re it, you manipulate the stuckness and you move it out hmm. and you recalibrate the energetic field. And so a lot that's a lot of what's happening. Are you seeing your own field or I see, like I've seen that a few times, but 
I mean, it was, I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's being able to read energy, Uh but by and large, like, uh, ayahuasca opens up access to this and it becomes a diagnostic. So it's, it's, it's the ax, it's part of the diagnostic tool that you are able to enter into this space, which you can now read subtle energies and manipulate it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's the rest of the forest with all the other medicines that they come in and they do the deep work. So like when you do plant diets with single plants, you know, they're coming in and they're working. Explain what a plant diet is. So a plant diet is when you agree to work with a plant and in a teacher and a mentor student relationship, the plant is the teacher usually involves a pretty strict restricted diet so that's where the word dieta comes from. It means diet. So it's the sense of like eating really simply. You cut out salt, you cut out sugar, alcohol, caffeine, sex. Spices. It's real Spices. bland food. Bland, simple. Yeah. And the basic principle is you sort of, you starve the body, not starve, but you minimize the input to the body to maximize the spirit. Hmm. So you, you transition the focus of your energy out of your body into your spirit and you get really sensitive. And so you're, you know, it's, it's a meditative thing. So you retract your interactions with the world and you go into this kind of introverted state and you, you, so what, what, what salt does is it's a binder. It holds us in place. It, it's sort of like it, it locks the physiology and it, it's a fixer. It, it, it binds the spirit to the, like it, it, it pulls the spirit into the body, right? Yeah, I mean, its function is, it's, it's a fixed thing. So when salt is in our, in our diet, we, like it helps us maintain our constitution as it is. So part of You the, mean like a sense of groundedness and stability? Is that what you're talking exactly, about? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, salt is earth, it's fixed, it's grounded, it's stable, it doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a fundamental part of what we need. Sure. As, as our nutrition, it helps us maintain our form and health. Retain but, water, yeah. Yeah. But when you go into these highly transformational initiatic experiences, by removing that binder, you remove the crystalline lattice that holds your constitution in place. And so your constitution becomes much more malleable. And then, so you've got this really restricted diet. You remove salt. You remove a lot of sensory stimulation. You, there's no sex mm-hmm. with other people, no masturbation even. So it's this sense of you sort of turn off the switch of your sexual energy. Mm-hmm. And then you basically drink a tea of whatever plant you're working with on a regular basis. Fairly strong, I imagine. Is it like pretty, yeah. pretty bitter? Yeah, definitely. Or thick? probably not thick right but it's like i mean the teas that i've made of it's been it's just it's, it's tea it's okay. it's not like decocted ayahuasca yeah, syrup yeah, yeah. You, right. you could do that but and then it's basically just getting facetime with these plants you know uh getting to know them meditating with them praying with them you know welcoming them into your body but most of these plants that are dieted, 
most of them are not psychedelic themselves, right? No. Like you don't go on like, it's not like an ayahuasca experience where you're having, you know, a really kind of altered state. I mean, it's an altered state of consciousness, right? But it's, it's much more subtle, right? Then it's not like a full on psychedelic journey. Yeah. So the, the diets that I've done in the vegetalismo tradition, uh, the diet is opened in the ceremony and it's closed in the ceremony. So it's almost like the shaman is there almost as like a matchmaker mm -hmm. does, you know, with us humans. It's like you open up the, this diagnostic space, you call in the spirit of the plant. You, uh, as you drink ayahuasca, you also drink this, you know, whatever plant that you're working with. And then it's the sense that you're fusing the spirit, you, you know, the spirit of the plant is, f is being fused with you. Mm -hmm. And there's special ecodos for that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that sort of has that synthesis process and communicating with the spirit of the plant that, okay, you are going to be teaching this person, you know, they're like, and that whole thing. And then, so it, it opens it up and it kind of plants the seed of the work. And then the work continues for as long as you do the diet. And then there's the closing ceremony. I mean, th there can be other ceremonies in between. So this is like a prolonged length amount of time, right? Like several days or perhaps yeah. up to a week where you're doing. I've done them up to months. So there's two different types. There's a, the traditional isolated diet where you're, you know, you retreat into the forest and you're in isolation. You don't see, see other people. Uh, food gets brought to you. And you're basically in a meditative state with this plant. You're, it's, a, it's a complete immersive experience where the transformation is on full blast. Mm -hmm. And those usually last on the order of, you know, 10 days, a couple weeks, three weeks, you know, but it's super intense. Mm -hmm. And then you come out of it a different person. Mm -hmm. And then there's... And, a, and in those, you... The way I've heard those described is... Um, typically you're doing an ayahuasca ceremony every other day within that duration mm -hmm. or every third day maybe uh, but you're drinking the tea every day yeah 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 so you know the the ayahuasca ceremonies they help move move through mm -hmm. a lot of energy you know like if the plant is working with you and recalibrating and then it's like okay it's it, now it's time to like discharge a bunch of shit so like you know, you bring the ayahuasca in and you purge it out and, mm -hmm. and then, and then you free up a bunch of space and the plant can, whatever plant you're working with, it can go deeper and deeper. And then the ayahuasca comes in and purge a bunch of stuff out again. And so in the ceremony where you're initiating the plant diet, so, uh, you, you drink ayahuasca and then uh, you do you wait some amount of time for like you're really you're fully in the force of the medicine before you then bring in you then you drink the tea for the first time no um i've usually uh have been given both at the same time i see you know and, and like the ayahuasca cup is sung to and the plant is you know the the other cup with the tea is sung to and then drink them at the same time. And so, you know, if you've had enough experience 
with ayahuasca and you've kind of learned to recognize like, oh, this is the feeling of ayahuasca. This is the spirit of ayahuasca. Then when you are also drinking that other plant at the same time, like how, how clearly different, like, can you feel that different element of that plant? Like, is that, is that a real clear experience? Like, wow, there's a, there is a new energy that must be this plant or have an experience of like meeting that spirit mm-hmm. or is it kind yeah. of like something that unfolds over time or is it, is it really like a, you've had a distinct experience from the very first initiation ceremony? Yeah. I mean, I've been able to even delineate the difference between like the Shakruna and the ayahuasca, like it, you know, the, the mixture of the two, um, I relate the Shakruna. There's like at the very beginning of a ayahuasca ceremony, there's like a 20 minutes, like it's, uh, call it like the alien playroom. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, we're meditating. And then when the effects first come on, there's like this very DMT, this I'll enter into the, like things get really sparkly in my mind's eye. Things start getting really crackly. And all of a sudden my mind's eye opens up into this space and the walls are saturated with these sort of like heavily saturated colors, these impossible shapes folding inside out. Uh, it, it feels like there's this presence of like some sort of like insectoid ET, other intelligence inhabits it. And it usually goes on for 5, 10, 20 minutes. And this is pretty consistent. Every single time hmm. I go through this space and that... Does it feel at all like a box? You you described it as a room. Yeah. Because I've never been there with ayahuasca, not a single time, but I've been there many times with DMT. It's exactly like you say. Yeah. It's like this box, it's this room. Yeah. Like, it's like cube-shaped. It has like square corners, kind of. Not really, but... Yeah, yeah yes and no. It's like hyper-dimensional, and it's, yeah. all in the, it's all in the mind's eye. Right. It's very DMT, and that's the Shakruna. Whereas for me, ayahuasca has like a deep, there's just a different character to it. The The DMT feels very uh, ET-ish. It feels ve- just so alien, other mm-hmm. of an intelligence, very hyperdimensional. Whereas um, the ayahuasca spirit feels ancient and woody. And earthly. Rooted and... Yeah. It has more, it's more, to me, it's more of a recognizable essence. It's more of like an, it, it is ancient and also ex, extraterrestrial physio- in a way, but it's more relatable to the energy that I recognize on earth. Yeah. Whereas DMT is not at all like earth. Yeah. It's like there's this innate intelligence in the physiology, like in the, in the very rooted cellular nature and working with the digestive system and right. as it relates to the plethora of trauma and and healing. And so there's, you know, the ability to separate out those two different types of energies in the brew itself. Mm -hmm. And then, and then introducing, you know, another plant. What was the first plant that you dieted? Lavender. Oh, lavender. Okay. And it was in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it wasn't down south. And that was, so you made a tea out of that. A daily tea, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the plants that I've dieted with have been uh, very yin, yin, flowery, calming, nervine sedatives. 
Uh, can you name them, or is it a huge list? No, not at all. And then Rose. Oh, two. Yeah, okay. those, those are the formal ones. And Rose was for six months. Mm-hmm. So that that's the kind of more modern revision of the traditional dieta. And so it's more of a social diet where I kept going to school. I was drinking a tea every day. Uh, you know, restri- very restricted diet of what I was eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, you know, not terribly social, but, you know, had to continue maintaining what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Functional in, in the regular world, but still maintaining a meditative mindset. Yeah, it's it's a practical compromise mm-hmm. that's been introduced in the last couple of years. So would you say that you gained, you know, lavender and rose are pretty well-known herbs and plants and their essence, I think, is well-known, at least amongst people who care about these kind of things. Um, and plus they're indigenous to this land, which is important. Yeah. Because going back to what we were saying at the very beginning around us Westerners right. going and like... Like, I want, like, it's sort of like be, being a crutch for us because we're a bunch of orphans that have, have been cut off from our European homelands. Mm. You know, like, we don't have our shamanic traditions. They've been lost. Mm-hmm. They've been forgotten. They've been cut out. Undermined, yeah. And so, like, we are a rootless people in North America that, you know, outside of native american like they've got their medicine and their lineages and their traditions intact but we don't really have our own but it's really important for us to work with the indigenous plants of the land so you know there's all this medicine around us Mm -hmm. and that's what we need to develop our relationships with what's here and that's what is really going to be for the long term for us Mm -hmm. but you know working with uh experts you know, exporting ourselves down south and then bringing the medicine up north. Like it's, it's helping us. It's kind of like a fast forward, but we're not going to become Shipibo people type thing. Like it's Shipibo right. medicine. It belongs in the jungle. Um, mm-hmm. It has its mission. It's clearly like, uh, you know, helping humanity heal itself so that it can come back into right relationship with the rest of the earth community. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's got its own agenda and it's clearly... You know, it's in it's it has recruited all sorts of Western people to facilitate its agenda. And non Western people. It's I think it probably I know it grows all over the world. It's been transplanted all over the world, but especially in tropical regions. I imagine it's probably growing through all the tropics everywhere. I know it grows in India. Um I mean you just think of the level of biological intelligence on an evolutionary strategic oh sure i mean Un- unrivaled to to We're get the, the humans yeah to propagate it across the world so it's similar like that but you know the the deeper some of the deeper lessons i've gotten around you know reintegrating the shamanic traditions in our culture in a true way is not to appropriate other cultures medicines and traditions but to establish our own relationships with the indigenous medicine that's here. Hmm. And so for me, it's been working with lavender. It's been working with rose like because they're here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I've never heard of that before, but yeah, I like what you're saying about it. That makes sense. 
So, um, yeah, I was saying before, a lot of people are familiar with lavender and rose are pretty common herbs. Would you, and you probably were as well beforehand, um, did you gain, like what kind of deeper insight into those plants did you gain through dieting them? Yeah, it's, I guess so for me, there's been a, a deeper thread of really um, accessing my own feminine intelligence, feminine being, mm. softening myself. Uh, so lavenders and nervine sedative, that seems to be really good medicine because I love caffeine. Calm, calming to the nervous system. C- calming to the nervous system. Mm-hmm. I love jacking my nervous system up. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much every day I'm operating. Go time. In in a highly caffeinated state. And so this is the natural medicine for that. Mm. There's also a deeper level. I mean, it's it's not just physiological, but when you work with plants on this spirit level, you know, like it's it's at a level that it's hard to articulate, you know. Like mm-hmm. it's at it's at an energetic level mm-hmm. that I can't quite um, map to words. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's a, a deep bliss that I get when I'm around lavender. Mm-hmm. Like I inhale it and I kind of like, it's like a euphoric, calming, blissed out state. Was that always the case or just now that you have learned it on a deeper level? Yeah. I mean, in the last couple of years, but I mean, do you have any, experience with lavender before dieting it where you had like that kind of bliss it wasn't really on my radar okay. on, at that level you know? yeah and then with rose it's it was all pure heart medicine you know kind of mending mending my heart mm-hmm. it was good yeah and also learning boundaries in relationship mm-hmm. so there's like you know there's the flower but then there's also the thorns mm-hmm you know, and mm-hmm. the, the thorn in plant intelligence is one of the mechanisms for defense, mm-hmm. you know, and the ability to draw clear boundaries in relationship is healthy and it's also a form of defense, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was that element of maybe having a leaky heart or having holes in it, you know, having it being wounded and having it being kind of not totally integrated or integral. And so there was this sense of delineating a boundary. You know, I think this is part of the dieting process, you know, like you have to fortify your energetic boundary. I think that's a pretty rare skill that a lot of us need to learn Western people wise. Like it's not really requires a lot of self-awareness and sensitivity to subtlety, I think. And saying no too, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's like, it's like the, the physical embodiment of no, it's like, yes, 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 yes. No. Like there's like this boundary of, of edge three, three feet out. But like, if you're just like, yes, 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 out into whatever. Like there, there's no threshold anywhere. And so energies can come in and go as they please. And so not, not everything is beneficial. You know, there's pathogens out there. There's malicious intent. So, you know, by having 
And you can kind of dilute your own soup in a way. Like you're more impressionable. Yeah. And so being able to learn the skill set of an energetic boundary to me is foundational in in cultivating power in your life, cultivating mm -hmm. personal power. Like a, that's a fundamental skill in being effective as a human in terms of doing your work in the world as opposed to you know, it, it's being able to resist others' influences to the point where you can decide whether, you know, like you have a greater defense in terms of all sorts of influences coming at you. You're like actively de discerning whether that influence is something that you want to accept into your field or not. Yeah. You're like engaging a conscious choice. You know, and this is kind of an antisocial skill. Yeah, how so? I mean, and th th I'm kind of taking a step back and describing some of the skills that I've learned from dieting in general. Mm -hmm. You know, w with Rose, it was kind of boundaries around the heart, but this process of dieting and retracting your energy from the world around you, sure, disengaging from social interactions, disengaging from having sex with people, like that's antisocial, right? Like you are not, you are retracting your energy from being social with people Yeah. so that you can bring your own energy on your own physiology, on your own body, on your own healing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's the basic function of a container, you know, like that, that's the essence of ceremony, any sort of magical space. It's delineating the container. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the sort of three foot energetic, field around our bodies mm -hmm. hmm. um, uh, something I gonna I was gonna ask you I forgot go ahead <laughs> yeah I was just gonna say uh, just to go back to the rose piece mm -hmm. you know having that as having her as a strong ally has been amazing, mm. you know, and, uh, yeah, it feels like, you know, it's good heart medicine and it feels really good to have clean, pure heart. Like that's the center of our being and ha having the core sun, you know, uh, at the center radiant mm -hmm. that is the engine with which vitality radiates out into the rest mm -hmm. you know all, all the other organs receive you know life force from that and so like having that mm, solid and then having it open you know part of Part of what I came to learn that it, that was a characteristic of mine was uh, a heart that opened and closed. Mm -hmm. You know, like that was something that energetically I had to, I had to learn. That's what was happening. Mm -hmm. It would be open, and then it would I'd feel unsafe, and then it would close. And there's a sense of like when the heart closes off, it's a defense mechanism, you know, to stay safe. But it's also like a it also it's like a form of self-sabotage because 
you know, the heart functions best when it's open. Right. Like when the heart closes. Like a flower. Yeah, but it's it's more like a an open hose or something or an open feedback loop. Like the heart is the organ of the unitive connection. It connects us with everything else, mm-hmm. other people, other species. It's how we communicate with plants is through the heart. And when the heart's closed off, the flow of vi- life uh vital life force energy isn't able to flow freely. Hmm. Uh, And so I think learning how to stabilize my heart field and have it open, but yet also with a, with a healthy boundary and not fluctuating Mm -hmm. open and closed, open and closed. I think that was part of the lesson, you know, that, over the course of the diet, that's what I came to embody. So it's it's a it's a teaching in the sense that it's not like a a word teaching. It's like a how my body operates transformation. Would you say it was like a somewhat of an energetic entrainment? Like the rose brought in the essence or the feeling of a secure, strong, open heart and that like you could then feel the difference between where the rose was and where you were. And it kind of like gave you a uh, sort of like a stability point of a certain type to kind of like open up to. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the principle of homeopathy hmm. is like cures like. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the sense of like rose comes in with a really stable imprint of what it, of, of being like a, stable love frequency mm-hmm. you know and that comes in and it just just by inhabiting my body for long enough my body is able to recalibrate it it has the healthy template mm. which it learns from at a cellular level and then it re kind of my constitution re reorganizes around that healthy template mm-hmm And did you find a similar thing with lavender? Like you were talking about lavender being the perfect medicine for uh, your caffeinated lifestyle, maybe on more of like a... Help with the anxiety. Physiological level. But did you find there was a deeper entrainment of like just, yeah, like relaxing a deeper level of latent stress Mm -hmm. of, of like generated by the mind or the consciousness or certain, yeah cognitive fixations or whatever whatever it is that causes stress did you find that you had a similar experience like with rose and the opening of the heart that you kind of just could entrain to the feeling of uh, relaxation that lavender offered definitely i would say it was learning or almost training the parasympathetic response Mm. which is the rest and digest so like there's this natural affinity in my constitution and I think a lot of people like me, people that work in tech and people that maybe type A personalities that work hard and push it. Mm-hmm. There's this sense of like, I really enjoy ramping up my nervous system mm-hmm. and running on adrenaline. Like I'm naturally tipped forward. Mm-hmm. And, but the skill set of like being able to like, like, Ease in. Slow down the nervous system. And I mean, meditation has helped with that. But, you know, part of the 
skill set that I learned from working with Lavender is that sedation, like the skill set of sedation, like calming and like the nervous system learning the other side of things, the anti-caffeine mm-hmm. or the, you know, whatever the converse of that is. And, and I think that's a lot of the, the euphoric bliss state. You know, like I, I, I smell it and I, I kind of go into this sort of floaty, it's very calm and serene. Hmm. So that, that's the natural state that I kind of feel from it. And that's a perfect antidote to the caffeinated jittery natural equilibrium. The high octane yeah. kaisen. Yeah. Hmm. Do you uh, have any... So how long ago was your last diet? And do you have a desire to do another one? Uh, a couple years. Mm-hmm. Are you still working with ayahuasca? Nope. Recently? Um, taking a break. Yeah. Uh, the last last couple of years have been super hardcore, really deep shadow work. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, going so deep and just almost like it's like touching your finger into the electrical socket. Uh-huh. Like there was a couple times where it was so intense and so much fear and so much just like uh, coming up all at once that it's like being in a state of shock. I think, yeah, this is actually closing the diet. Closing the diet with Rose, I went into like a state of shock at the end of it. Hmm. There was so much to it at that time. I mean, and it also, I mean, I was, I think during that time I harvested a bunch of Amanita muscaria. Did you eat some? Mushrooms. No, but what I did is I brought them home and I put them in the oven to dry them out, but I kind of cooked them a little bit too much because the oven didn't didn't have a low setting. And I, I just smelled a nice cooking mushroom smell, but that was it. But I did notice a whole bunch of uh, neurotoxic symptoms the next couple of days. Like I was... Just from the smell or just from like it was released into the air? I mean, and you have to understand the state that I was in after six, oh, yeah. six yeah, months. Sure. Of, uh, I was super open and sensitized. Oh, so, yeah. So even just a... a you took in the energy, prob- maybe even just not like you were intoxicated by the like particles, but like... I voluntarily picked open. them. I, I went out into the forest and was like, ooh. <laughs> and I got the like the little in the back of my mind like danger danger that red is like a warning sign and i was like yeah but they're so pretty i want to pick them anyways and so i kind of took on a bit of the karma there and i mean i was able to delineate their energy in that in that last ceremony it was like a like a munchkin uh kind of monster troll type mischievous gnome yeah kind of thing going on Hmm. that scared the shit out of me really so yeah. you felt them, you felt, so you picked them, you cooked them, and then you did a closing ceremony after that point and you felt them. Yeah, it was, in... it was a two, two days of, of, it was like a weekend closing and the, the first day was nice. And then it was like that following day, I went for like a walk in the forest, picked them, cooked them, and then went back to the second ceremony and like, wow. so it was like in between both of them that they... I guess they were just a part of it. Do you think, and so that tipped you 
you know, perhaps like initiated a direction into shadow work? I mean, the whole following week I was out. I was, I was very sick. It was, wow. it was the only time that I, uh, I mean, like I, when I would get up and I would walk around, I would have like splitting headaches and I'd be dizzy. And I mean, classic neurotoxic symptoms from those mushrooms, like wow. textbook. Yeah, apparently that's a very uncomfortable experience. Never tried it myself. That last night was the sense of um, sticking my finger in an electrical socket. It's like there's shadow work when stuff comes up and it's freaky, and then there's like staring into the abyss. You know, the abyss of your own of your own being. Of yeah, and absorbing it all at once to the point where it's like. That's what created the shock was just the pure level of voltage yeah, of the intensity of the experience. So when you say you've been doing shadow work the last couple of years, but not with ayahuasca, what's... Yeah, no, with, with it. Oh, with ayahuasca, the last couple. I thought you said you're taking a break, though. Yeah, because of all of it. Oh, because of all of that, I see, I see. I mean, it's, you know, largely in studying astrology, um, part of the modality that... I've been working with is, you know, it comes out of LSD psychotherapy. So it, it's using the outer planet transits as an indicator of the archetypal spaces that you enter into when you have these psychedelic experiences. So it's like, it's two different languages to describe the same thing. So like psychedelics are the applied experience that you go into these non-ordinary states Mm-hmm. You can have a blissful experience. You can have a hellish experience. You can have a teaching experience. Mm-hmm. You can have all these different qualities. The outer planet transits will show you the symbols that will you can read into them what type of quality is active. And so for the last three or four years, I've been going through a Pluto-Saturn transit, which is super difficult. Uh, Does that happen... For all people around a certain point in their life or not necessarily? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Is it a specific time period? And It's going to be different for everyone. Okay. Depending on where Pluto was when you were born, depending on where Saturn was. Does it happen, does it happen during every person's life or can you mm-hmm. go an entire lifetime? M- multiple and, times, yeah. Oh, multiple times. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it ha- you know, like the first time I went through it was in my early 20s. And that's when I was going through college. So I was working really hard. I was very diligent. You know, the Saturn working, Pluto intensifying it. Just describe the energy of Pluto. Just Pluto is the underworld. It's the form of power. It relates with nature. So like you want to think of like volcanoes, like the energy that is stored deep in the earth as lava boils up and shoots out. Mm-hmm. It's... It's Hades as, as it relates to the underworld. And the underworld is like, you know, when you enter into a period of chaos and you, your maps of the world don't line up with what reality is, you have to go through an underworld journey where you fall apart, you go through some crisis. There's a death and rebirth. This is the classic hero's journey. Mm-hmm. You've got to go into some cave. You've got to fight some dragon. Which so rep- upside down. Yeah, it, it represents this fear shadow element that you have to confront and then you have to assimilate it 
and absorb it or defeat it, you know, in some way you have to encounter it and do some sort of battle with it and then absorb its treasures. Mm -hmm. And then you reemerge like that's the underworld journey. And it's, you know, you just want to think of all the realms of hell, all this. And there's a great benefit to it, but it takes a lot of courage and strength to be willing to undertake that journey. Yeah. Journey by by definition, that's how heroes are forged. Mm. Heroes are only forged by going through the underworld. Like by definition, the hero is defined by death, whereas the mother is defined by birth. Wasn't there a story in, uh, what is Hades? Is that the Greek? Yeah. And then, there's, and then there's Pluto. Pluto's a Roman. Who was the hero who went down to Hades? Or, do you remember? Do you know that story? Well, it was uh, Pluto dragged Persephone down there. Well, I can't really remember, but I vaguely remember this. Like um, one of, one of the gods had to had to go down to Hades for some reason. Yeah, I'm blanking on what anyway. it is. Yeah, I only I only illustrate all that to kind of like there's a potency. Sure, and it's a sh- it's the shadow world. It's all the instinctual drives. It's where the murder and genocide and killing and all of that is the darkest parts of. The individual soul and the human soul, or the human oversoul. Yeah, and evil, malevolence, you know, all that. All that's kind of like, that's it. That's all part of it. And But it's also wealth. So, you know, when you go down into this and you tap into these deep sources of power and you encounter them and you do battle with them, the byproduct of that is wealth, is treasure, you know, and mm-hmm. so there's this sense of when you, when you really step into your own power, like, and you own it, that is, like, that's a, that becomes a gift, you know. But then it also there's the responsibility of wielding it, and and there's kind of like the eternal, timeless, working with power, po- you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's that sense of you know, taking on more power and then like it has a corrupting influence mm-hmm. that will never go away. And so like the the timeless arc is evolving and maintaining a sense of higher integrity, like some sort of mm. vision that brings you up and out beyond the corrupting influence of power. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, you... You know, when you go through the hero's journey, go into the underworld, and you can only claim that treasure if you are in that, like, heroic integrity, if you're really, like, aligned to yourself, you know, like, you have to fully complete the mission, right? And it requires a certain state of being and a certain alignment to, like, you know, your your purpose and your true self in order to get to the end of that journey and claim that treasure, and I feel like, like, you know, let's just symbolize that treasure as a sword or something like that. And you're a hero. And now you have this cool sword that you got from the underworld. Well, if you, if the hero ceases to maintain that energy or that sense of being that he had when he claimed the sword, the sword will turn on him. It will like turn back into the, does that make sense? Like, I feel totally. like, yeah. yeah, I feel like in order to really, 
it's exercise a power, your, but it can be a weapon. your power, your heroic gifts, you do have to maintain a sense of integrity or else, you know, yeah, they'll turn on you. They'll turn yeah. into snakes and bite you. Yeah, you know, the sword, which is a symbol of honor and valor and all the virtues of heroism, mm -hmm. you know, like it can then just be, you know, a bloody weapon that you can devolve. You can go on a trajectory of devolution. Mm -hmm. You can cause all sorts of mayhem and ruckus. And, mm -hmm. and so this whole world was unpacked because you said the trigger word of Pluto. You asked about that. So I'm sure. trying to paint a picture of what this realm is. So it's the, all of that, the, the realms of power, heroism, death, rebirth. Those are all those themes. So this has been active. Plus for me, Pluto with Saturn. And what kind of uh, interaction was it? Like um, what aspect? Uh, square. Square. So incredibly dynamic, hard-edged. At, at odds. At odds, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it creates the dynamism within which to do great things. It's it's an incredible struggle. Yeah, sounds like a lot of pressure. It's I've been under the most pressure that I've ever been under in my entire life these last three years. Uh -huh. Like I, I don't hang out with people. I don't have casual interactions. I'm working my fucking ass off to, on a huge project that is super ambitious to change the world. Uh -huh. Like that's all that matters to me anymore. Uh -huh. That's very like that's the Saturnian Pluto like that. That's a really high aspect of it. Yeah, you're like that, in the underworld, going for that treasure. Yeah, I mean, it, a really good example of an integration of these two forces is like a steely determination. You know, at the very beginning of the transit, I, you know, had some like extreme rage experiences where I burned a bunch of shit in my house. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was flipping out. This is also under a lunar eclipse, but... You know, I was dealing with, and I had to say like a really hard no. You know, the, the rose diet was at the very beginning of this Pluto-Saturn transit, so it was super intense. Mm. I lay all that stage just to, to indicate this is what has the, the deeper dynamics of my psyche. That's what's been going on in the basement, mm -hmm. right? And so when I go into these psychedelic spaces... And I open up my ordinary awareness in the thresholds and open up the filters, this material comes up. Mm -hmm. So the last three, four years have been a lot of hellish, a lot of prison scenarios, a lot of jailing, a lot of feeling caged, mm -hmm. like like feeling like I was like a a delinquent tiger in a cage surrounded by other bigger tigers that were restricting me, um, being in a, in a, there was one time I was being a, in a prison. There was another time I was in a cell with like a, with like a, a, like a stone God that as soon as I walked into the, into the cell room, just gripped me and froze me with, hmm. his, with his intense power. It was this sense of, um, stubbornness meets this and such intense stubbornness over time holds a form into stone. Like all the life vitality leaves and all that's left is this hard stone mm. element. And, and that is what is this element of stubborn, that, that conservative kind of hold things in place 
above all else. And, and so like I walked into this room and immediately got gripped by that. And then there was this intense battle of needing to liberate myself from that captivity. Did it feel like being in an intense gravitational field like, or did it like direct something at you or did you like walk into its sphere of influence and it froze you? Yeah. It felt like being gripped by a God, uh-huh. like just immediately like in its snare. Sure. And then the whole experience, which seemed like it lasted an eternity was liberating myself from that. How did you do that? I don't know exactly, but there was a point where I just realized it and was just like sort of, I don't know, just ascended out of it mm-hmm. or transcended out of it and was like, oh, okay. The point of this suffering experience is to get out of it, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. it, 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 and it took overcoming an incredible level of compression uh, and oppression and sort of like this ascend, ascending movement and almost like kind of like a waking up. Mm-hmm. Like there's some times where I like if I'm sleeping, I'm like, okay, if I realize I'm in a dream, I'll just like, and I don't like it, I'll just wake up. Yeah. That kind of response. I don't quite know how it's like a instant. So did, were you finding a lot of value in having these manifested experiences of your like kind of the basement, you know, man, bringing that up into these ayahuasca ceremonies. Cause unfortunately I think, I mean, I think a lot of people wouldn't want to do that necessarily. Like I know a lot of people, I mean, I think that's the perfect time to do medicine work uh, because it's all there anyway. It, but you know, you, you get to go into that and you actually get to work with it, but it takes a lot of courage and strength. And I know, like I've seen a lot of people, they're just like, oh, I can't drink ayahuasca right now. I'm in a terrible place. And I'm like, that's the perfect time. Yeah. But it is not easy to, to, you know, do a ceremony or a series of ceremonies when you're in that kind of a deep life phase. Yeah, it's been super difficult. And so there's sort of like a non-linear medicinal aspect to this uh, by going into these spaces that have been so difficult and such a, in, in, by actually choosing to engage with this really dark material that is a part of me, I am integrating some really deep aspects, you know, within my own being. And so I'm freeing up a real, like an incredible amount of dense energy, which now I have access to. And so on the day-to-day level of my life, I've been able to sit still for long periods of time and focus in a very intense way and be extremely productive. Mm. So if you think of, if you transfer the lesson of being gripped by a God in a cell and being held in place against mm-hmm. my will, like the lesson of, of being held in place, day to day, I'm choosing to sit there in place and not move and be productive with what I'm doing. So mm-hmm. like, there's like kind of like a parallel mm-hmm. in terms of my ability 
And it's almost like the ambition and courage that it takes to go down into these cell hellish prison places is the level of ambition and courage it, I have needed to muster to actually initiate my project and my, my vision. Mm -hmm. Like it's been a huge series of thresholds to overcome. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's, that, that's like how I've applied it in my life and put it to really good use. It's like, that's the treasure. Like you, you went down into the hell realm and you're through solving that puzzle box or that all these different visions you had, all these different scenarios, you had to find a way out of the room. You had to find the solution. And that very solution that helped you escape was the treasure, some aspect of the heroic self that you found that you then can apply to future situations. Yeah, I've got this fortified skill set, yeah. which I'm using on a day-to-day -day basis. That's This is one of the most interesting things about ayahuasca I've found is that it's such a unique experience. Um, often we'll have incredible visions, some hellish, some heavenly or anywhere in between that are so fantastical. They don't really relate to regular life. Like, you know, you can tell these stories and it's like, you know, it's your vision. You had that experience, but it, you know, it's just, it's almost like in the realm of fairy tale land or something like that. Right. Not, not saying that the you're, level of myth. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, you're right. But the interest, so the interesting thing about ayahuasca I've found is that somehow me learning to work with this medicine, like in all of these kind of unique scenarios, like the one you said, somehow it's also teaching me about life. Like all situations just like this, I'll recognize, oh, I went through this whole thing. And what does that even have to do with my daily life, though? It's like I just went in this dance through, like, yeah, the myth, the mythical psyche. But yet in some way, it it's applies journey. directly to my life. And not only just to my character in general, but to the specific, um, the specific problem set in my, in my life. There is a parallel, there's a crossover. And somehow the ayahuasca experience or the spirit, or I don't even know, I don't even know the guiding principle behind it, but it's like it delivers the perfect experience for you to develop yourself, to actually like move forward in the obstacles in your daily life. And um, it took me a long time to see that or realize that because, I mean, yeah, there's that deeper layer. I, I think a lot of people can fixate on the visions. Oh, I saw this. And, you know, fixate on the story of the myth and the happenings of the journey rather than you know, the, there's a deeper lesson in there, right? Like that's yeah. the purpose of myth. It's not, oh wait, so yeah, who was it that went down to Hades? Oh, what was his name? You know, that's less yeah. important. It's the, you know, there's some, there's that nugget of like relatable wisdom that is timeless, that applies to all of us, uh, that's transmitted through these myths. And, uh, it's an amazing experience to be able to 
to viscerally experience your own mythos or have it unfold in front of you and you get to be the hero in your own story. Totally. Yeah, I mean, everything that I've been studying with uh, depth psychology is that, you know, interacting with, like being in a story, uh, the myth, myth, the way myth works and the way dreams work, like when we dream at night, the dreaming intelligence creates these scenarios within which is populated characters with which we interact with. That's the basic language which the intelligence of the universe communicates. Like it communicates in images, it communicates in fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like though that that is the primary substrate of universal communication. So it happens in dreams. And then what myths are is like it's like the collective dream. And so learning how myths work, like engaging in the process, in the mythic process, you know, like tapping into like your own legend, living your legend like that. That's a deep level of living, you know, and and you're not just operating as a human anymore. You're operating at the level of the soul, Mm. you know, like that's where all this is going on. And James Hillman talks about, he's a psychologist. He says the, the dream world has its own mechanics or its, its own intentions, its own reason for being and trying to appropriate the dream into the day world is missing the point. Like, like the soul operates in the dream and it has its own thing going on. Uh, a really convenient byproduct is that it can benefit the day world sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so like, you know, if we're in these ayahuasca journeys and you get this really good nugget, you know, that then turns into a skill that you can use in your day to day life. But sometimes it's just a journey for the soul, Mm -hmm. you know, that has nothing to do with day to day business, you know, or, you know, and I think our, our rational mind, which, you know, we are so geared towards in Western culture to use the rational mind, you know, wants to, wants to look at the ayahuasca vision or the dream and say, you know, wants to understand it, wants to say, oh, uh, you know, this happened and this happened. Oh, wh- wh- what's the symbolism of this and that? And kind of like fixate on the individual pieces and try and discern the meaning. But what I'm gathering through this conversation is that the deeper meaning of a dream is not what happened or what is there, but it's how does it, how did it make you feel? You know, like, yeah, the whole situation, the whole scenario is very important, but like, who were you in that? You know, like seeing yourself, seeing your, cause you're asleep, right? So it's, that's your pur- pure self. Who were you in that moment? How did you feel in that moment? Um, or yeah, how did you how did you behave? Did you move forward to solve that puzzle, or withdraw into fear, or what you know, what have you? Like I I get an image in my mind of like you're talking about relating the the nighttime world, the dream world, to the daytime world, right? And between those two points, you can either take a bridge 
or you can take a tunnel. And the bridge is the surface world of the rational mind. And you're trying to figure out like, oh, what does it mean? What does it mean? But traveling through the tunnel, that's the subconscious route. And that's more of the realm of it's feeling and understanding on a different level than the mind. I don't know that I can really describe it, but yeah, it's a different, a different mode of being. Yeah. It's not using the understanding mind at all. Yeah. It's using the, the dream intelligence. Right. You know, like for example, it's just a, it's a happy byproduct that engaging with the stone God you know, and learning that skill of transcending that experience that had a, that skill transferred to the day world. Mm-hmm. But there's other experiences where it feels like I'm a caged tiger, you know, in detention or something mm-hmm. like I haven't, there's, there hasn't really been like a transferable lesson from that other than just like an experience of suffering. Yeah. But there's some value there that is beyond my ability to comprehend it right. or interpret it as a skill that I can use. Right. You know, like. Do you ever feel like sometimes, you know, you go into that mission, you go into that puzzle set, and uh, you know, just don't solve it? I mean, I've had plenty of dreams where I didn't make it, you know, I didn't die necessarily, but like I come out of it and I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> I didn't, that's not what I wanted to do. Like the way it behaved, the way, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to the end that time, you know, and, you know, maybe, so maybe your tight, your caged tiger experience, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe that's one iteration of several iterations of that problem set. Uh, Definitely. You know, like maybe, so you had the caged tiger, right? But then it's similar to where you were fixated by that stone god. And it's a, the energy of restriction in both. But, you know, when it reiterated itself again, you solved it. You made it out of there somehow. You somehow found the internal pathway to escape that energy. Well, I mean, the stone god was early on. Oh, okay. Different. And, and the caged was recently, this oh, okay. last one. But the reason why I bring up the astrological piece is because there's been a consistent theme of restriction, uh, caging, constraints, suffering. Like those are all Saturnian themes. Mm. And then being underground in cells with uh, predator animals, that's all plutonic. And so, like, there's been consistent themes in that regard. But there, I mean, by and large, there's been some loose, like, the more that I have gone into these experiences, even though I don't fully understand all of it, uh, there's some nonlinear connection between kicking ass, you know, with my life. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though, like, there's still a whole bunch of unsolved. What the fuck was all that shit? Mm-hmm. Like I'm kicking ass mm-hmm. day to day. So it's like going through the tunnel. You don't get the satisfaction of seeing what you're doing, but as long as you keep moving forward, you get to the other side. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So we're going to wrap up this episode pretty soon. Um, 
but I feel like there's one last thing to say, like just to kind of wrap up everything that we've been talking about, like, and um, I'm not sure how to get there, but like, so you're, you're mapping things on a deeper level, like um, you're mapping your own astrology, you're navigating your own personal mythos, and also integrating your mind with it too, and your body too. Um, what can you say about these deeper archetypal realms? That's, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself, but, you know, just to put, just to bring all of this together, um, what have you learned about yourself on that base level that can apply to all of us? Um, what's the value in really understanding what's going on with your, in your astrological chart or, or what's, what's the value in understanding your own personal, personal mythos? Yeah. I mean, going back to some of the wisdom from the initiatic traditions, you know, the, the frame is that we are souls going through, you know, a timeless journey to evolve and grow and base, and what we're doing is we're exploring infinity you know across eternity like there's a timelessness and infinity has all these different like spaces to it it's got blissed out realms it's got productive realms it's got meaningless realms it's got hellish realms it's got mythical realms so from the point of view of being a soul that never dies, isn't really born, is kind of like an indestructible spark traveling through infinity, experiencing all the different realms that infinity has to offer. Part of, part of that journey is coming to know all these different realms, you know, uh, and what that does is it provides a richness of experience. So at the core of it, the soul is really, is really only interested in experience. The human wants to get away from pain and towards pleasure, right? It wants to minimize suffering, things like that. It has a direction to it, but the soul is only interested in experience because hmm. it's only interested in the, the richness of infinity, and any experience is just as valid as any other. Exactly. Even mm -hmm. if it's being jailed, if it's being imprisoned, if it's being killed multiple times over, you know, like that adds a depth to the soul. Mm -hmm. So at a deep level, that's the basic operating principle. That's the MO of the initiatic path, mm -hmm. you know, exploring infinity. And then that breaks down into you know, these using these astrological techniques, which give you the map for, okay, now I'm exploring the Plutonic, Saturnian, hellish prison realms for these couple of years. And that I, the fact that I know that has given me the really solid skills to be able to continue, like, okay, this is my work for the next four years is mm. like, this is, what I'm exploring right now. Mm -hmm. And this is my work. No, like if I didn't know that, it would just be chaos and be like, oh my God, I'm, what's going on? I'm fucked for life. 
yeah, you know, like what's wrong with me sort of thing. Like I didn't have any context for that. Right. You know, and then I will shift into a different archetypal realm as the, as the stars shift and the gods shift in Mm -hmm. my life and the, the, the activity in my deep psyche, like the tectonic plates, Mm -hmm. they shift and different dynamics emerge. Mm. And then I move into a different space to explore. So that's how I get it. Yeah. That's how I understand it all. Wow. Well, man, this has been fascinating conversation. You know, every time we talk, it's fascinating in some unknown direction. Never yeah. know where it's going to go. Yeah, um, this is rich. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you want to let people know, uh, is there anything that you want to uh, offer people as far as like uh, ways to get in touch or different, like you have some astrology yeah, I've platform. Got the program. Yeah. Yeah. What's the platform that you built? It's called Archetypal Explorer and you can get to it at archetypalexplorer.com and it's a personal astrology platform. It maps out your transits so you can see uh, what transits are going on for you at this time and then uh, I mostly use it for outer planet transits which are the really slowly moving big uh, chapters in life. And um, it's been, it's a really high level tool, which with, it will inform you at a really deep level, which which you can navigate and strategize and it's mm-hmm. a, it's a Jedi tool. Yeah. But it, but you designed it to be easy to use. You don't have to be an astrologer to use it. Yeah. Just it's it's meant for normal people. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. yeah. We didn't, maybe next time, uh, I'd love to have you on again. We didn't even talk about like really what you do. You're like a pro, uh, architect of you built this uh incredible system this astrology tool from scratch right and yeah yeah we'll, we'll have to talk about that next time yeah all, all in the last three years mm-hmm. under this same transit cool so check that out what one more time what's the website archetypalexplorer.com cool kaisan thank you thanks Vinch. After re-listening to this episode i thought i'd better go track down that study about precognition the one about the computer images flashing randomly and the people who have uh, a emotional response to it before the image is shown. Um, I wanted to do my due diligence and just make sure I'm not putting out false information, so I looked up the study. So the study is called Electrodermal Presentiments of Future Emotions and was conducted by Dr. Dean Radden, He's a parapsychology researcher at the Institute of Noetic Sciences here in California. And he has the paper published online if you'd like to check it out. I was doing some research to try and figure out if this experiment is legitimate. And I ran into a familiar problem I've encountered in the past when it comes to subjects that are scientifically taboo. And that is that there's a mess of noise to sort through, both pro and con. Uh, I found lots of spiritual websites that grab a hold of things like that as a confirmation of their belief in the paranormal. And it's not, you know, it's confirmation bias, basically. Um, They don't really have any real understanding of the content. And I found a similar thing on the other side, skeptical websites that want to shoot it down without taking a serious look. So the bottom line is it was difficult for me to ascertain whether or not 
this is actually a legitimate study. I'm not a scientist and I don't really feel like climbing through the weeds of scientific papers for a passing curiosity. Um, it's a general problem with science and journalism that there's often a lot that's lost in translation when a study goes from the paper and scientific jargon to publica publications intended for public consumption. Um, and yeah, it's a problem in society right now. Maybe it's something to discuss in a future episode, just the difficulty of finding information and um, determining whether information is true or not. Uh, and on another note, in researching Dr. Radden's study, I came across another body of research, which seems to be more reputable, at least on the surface. And this body of work is by Dr. Daryl Bem of Cornell University. And he has demonstrated precognitive effects in over nine different, in nine different experiments. And his work seems to be more difficult to refute and it's featured in, you know, more kind of mainstream publications, though still things like Wired.com, but at least not sort of spiritual websites. Um, things that have a little bit more journalistic credibility, though. I question everything these days. Anyway, you can check that out if you like. That's Dr. Daryl Bem of Cornell University. So my next episode will be the last of those that were recorded months ago. And after all, after this next one, next week, all the episodes will be, will have been recorded fairly recently. Um, it's been fun to re-listen to some of these episodes, especially this one being it, being that it was the very first one I ever recorded. I feel like I can hear my progress as a podcaster from the first episode to now. So that's exciting to see. And yeah, I just want to keep, keep doing this and keep getting better and try and put out the best content that I can. Next week will be my friend Iska Avaya. And I can't entirely remember what we talked about though. I recall we discussed spiritual bypassing, which is something is a name for something people do to use spirituality as a form of escapism by always wanting to stay on the light side and not embracing the totality of life or perspective. And we contrast that with the actual process of spiritual growth, which is much more raw and real, um, more like some of the things discussed in this episode with Kaisan. So stay tuned for that next week. As always, you can find me on social media. I'm at Chronicles of a Psychonaut on Instagram, um, Chronicles of a Psychonaut on Facebook and YouTube. And you can also check out chroniclesofapsychonaut.com. And that's my main website that's hosting the episodes. It's fairly simple, but you get to see kind of a more expanded layout if you're just, if you're used to just looking at it through podcast apps. So that's all for now. See you next time. Oh, one last thing. So the medicine song at the end of this episode is called Shamankuna Kayadi. And it's one of my favorite songs. And um, he goes by Mistico, which is a new name. He's 
um, I guess he's, he also has a professional musician's name, which I'm not going to mention. I assume he changed his name because he's a, he's a professional musician, but he also is an ayahuasquero. And so I guess that's his way of being more discreet with his medicine music is going by Mystico or however you say it. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, you, if you have sat in medicine circles in California or you're just in the scene, you'd probably recognize the voice. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of lyrics. And um, basically what the song is about is about singing to the plants. And that's what a lot of songs are about. Um, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, Chakrunera Pinturera. And Pinturera means paint. And Chakruna or Chakrunera is kind of like a affectionate way of referring to Chakruna. Chakrunera is a DMT con containing plant. So he's singing to the Chakruna to paint the visions. Chakrunera Pinturera. So there's little just lines and pieces in there. Um, yeah, just uh, evoking the the powers of the plants. Tobacero perfumero, like the smell of tobacco. So anyway, enjoy. Thank you. 
chamonera coraleja, sueña rica pintura, danza, danza de la Chamo con 